0: I'd like to begin by telling you about a friend of mine who some years back went to Asia and practiced for three months in a, in a monastery. And towards the end of his time he was increasingly having a kind of sense of real stillness and open-heartedness. Uh, it was a kind of openness where there wasn't any grasping, any want for anything to be different. Um, There wasn't a sense of somebody there that was owning the experience or controlling anything. So there's a real sense of of freedom and and well-being. And he asked himself, as we well might, well, is this enlightenment? You know, that was really his question. And then he went, came back to the States and spent the holidays with his wife's family and came to the conclusion it wasn't. (laughs) But in a way, it was and it wasn't. And I like the way I like to frame it, and uh, many teachers put it this way, is we can have enlightened moments. And for him, they were, what you might say, unstable, that what, what allowed that experience to really be in its fullness was a very um, structured environment and an intensive practice. Uh, But, you know, I've heard from many of you, many people tell me at the end of some of our retreats and even after a class, that there was this this time of kind of settledness and our quietness or touching some peace or a feeling of this heart that was not holding back love. And then also I hear people say, and then I started talking to people or I went home and, you know, had a conversation with my husband about, you know, who was gonna drive so and so to <laughs> the school next day and it all just vanished. You know? yeah. So that's what happens that we touch uh, and what I consider really valuable, we, we have a taste sometimes of freedom of that where we're not so self centered and there's an openness and a presence. And then because we still have a lot of habits of um, reacting, we we clutch. We move from that non-self-centeredness and that openness into a very solid kind of sense of here I am and I'm having a hard time and this is what I need to do. And our narrative's back in action, right? So the defining feature of any moment where there's really no suffering, any moment where there's really happiness, and I don't mean the kind of happiness because we just won, you know, a big award, but a a kind of happiness that's really deep. The defining feature is that there's not a sense of a self-identity. There's not a, a kind of centralizing of experience. Now, we might not consciously be aware that that's what's happening. We might not be saying to ourselves, oh, a selfless moment, you know. But in the moments where we're not holding on and we're not resisting, when we're just meeting life with our whole body, our whole awareness, there's not a solidification of self. And so this is the way the Tibetan book of the dead says, puts it, it says, O nobly born, O you of glorious origins, remember your radiant true nature, the essence of mine, trust it, return to it, it's home. And what happens to us? We just leave home, we forget. I think of a lot of this path as forgetting, we forget really who we are, We forget that love and that awareness and that creativity and that presence. And we go into this trance where we're in a kind of familiar but very narrowed sense of who we are. And we operate in it but it doesn't feel good because it's not home. And that in some way motivates us to pay attention in a way that helps us remember. And the more we have the taste of freedom, the more we get the sense of that really is who I am. There's the kind of kind of sincerity that grows that this is really, this feels like the truth of my being. And then we get motivated to bring it into all the parts of our life. And I really feel like the where spirituality becomes mature is when we're not just a, a yogi on a cushion trying to make a spiritual experience happen, but where there's this unfolding where through all the domains of our life there's more and more of a sense of living from who we are. There's more of that congruence, that remembering. So what I would like to talk about tonight and maybe next week, I'm not sure, I haven't kind of figured out how much I want to cover, is the centrality of this sense of identity. You know, to get us more awake to, oh, okay, consolidated, strong self here, have kind of forgotten the bigger picture. So that we're more awake to when we forget, we kind of notice the forgetting, which of course is the beginning of coming back home again. So we begin with um, the word identification and it's broken down, idem means same. idem means same, and fasiri means to make. So when we identify with something, we make it the same as self. There's this kind of ego self-identity, and what's happening is there's all these different facets of our experience that we say, oh, this is me. We kind of pull together a constellation, and that's our familiar sense of self. So what's it made of? What do we identify with? Well, we identify with our bodies and our appearances, right? That's a big one. We identify with the strong, uh, most predominant emotions that we feel and the thoughts and beliefs that typically go with them. That feels like me. When stuff happens, it's happening to me or I'm causing it. So these, the body, the emotions, the thoughts, and of course we identify with our roles, we hold them tight, that is me. We identify sometimes with our religion, our with our politics. Very strong. It's a very, you know, the, where we have a lo- very strong feelings, strong identity. When we have strong aversion, strong identification. When we have strong attachment, that's me. The identity is solid. So we start looking and sense, you know, what are we identifying the most with and where is it causing pain in our life? And sometimes it's not, you know. We we hold together this constellation with this narrative. We're always talking to ourselves about who we are and what's happening in our life. And we kind of present the main themes to others. You know, I am this kind of person, I'm that kind of person. You know, I'm a recovering addict or I'm a businessman or I'm an intellectual, scholarly type, or I'm a liberal or whatever it is. You know, I was uh, reminded the other day my husband Jonathan, has on his resume, on his website, and anywhere he has promotional materials, he's got his name, Jonathan Faust, and then it says M.A. CSA." Well, it wasn't until a few months ago. That somebody actually said to him, So what's the CSA? And with a great amount of dignity he said, It's Cub Scouts of America. (laughs) (laughs) It was the first time anyone asked. Now these are on on, these are on resumes he sends to banks that he does mindfulness stuff for and everywhere he sends it out and it says C S A and you know. So now is that identification a problem? I mean, you know. I don't know how much of his sense of self is wrapped around it, but what, so what makes an identity a problem? Okay? Because this is an important question. It's not a problem that an ego sense evolves. It is part of nature. It's part of the design. Ego sense emerges, it helps us to structure and organize and navigate on the planet. But when the aspects of the constellation that we're identified with are a problem is when they really define us. They prevent us from remembering what the Tibetan Book of the Dead is pointing to, this awareness, this love, this essence quality. It's when the identification's tight and it kind of possesses us and it squeezes us and it narrows us that it causes suffering. So how it happens, how does it happen that parts of our identity really squeeze us and keep us small? I tend to think of it in terms of severed belonging. You know, the more we have a sense of severed belonging from the whole, uh, and for some it happens because there wasn't good enough parenting, uh, there wasn't the kind of understanding and love that let us feel an organic sense of belonging, so something got severed. And so our identity starts clutching around things that aren't really our true nature. We develop a false self because we don't feel that belonging. Sometimes it's severed belonging happens out of genetic causes. And largely it happens because of the dis-ease of the cultures we live in. What are the messages we're given? Those messages help to shape our identity. And that identity is less than the truth of who we are. So if we believe it, if we're afraid we're falling short, or if we are inflated because we're so great, we're not going to see who we are. So there's a familiar domain that we know about that happens when we feel disconnected that most of us have some of. And that's, it shows up when we don't feel lovable or don't feel worthy. And there's this sense of uh, a limited self-sense. It's marked by feelings of failure, often that we're just not making it, or cravings that can never be really satisfied. And it's marked by difficulties with intimacy and anxiety. And that's our sense of self. It's a small sense of self. And for most of us, it also involves a sense of separate from others and others are bad or wrong in some way or are letting us down. So this is, again, the pain of that limited self-sense. It's interesting to me, both Western and Eastern psychology are very focused on this identity we have. And in Western psychology, it's how did our object relations, our connections with others, end up creating a sense of self and is it a healthy one or is it distorted, fragmented, confused? In Eastern psychology, the assumption is that not only do we have suffering from the way the distortions of the self-senses form, but any sense of self gets in the way of us really perceiving our wholeness. So a lot of the practice of meditation is not not in a real sudden way necessarily, but gradually helping us to deconstruct, to undo that sense of this is who I am, a separate self. So in our work on the spiritual path, whether we think of it this way or not, we are in a process of gradually remembering who we are. I mean the Buddha taught that our suffering is because we forget that wholeness. We, we forget the truth of who we are. And, and it's almost this invitation just to notice any time you're suffering, who are you believing you are? What's your sense of self in those moments? That's what we're going to begin to explore in a Uh, do some reflections together tonight so you can begin to identify where do you get hooked? Where does that sense of ego self become so, so solid and strong that it really causes you to forget your true belonging, forget really where the source of happiness is? So I like to begin with the way we get identified with our body because it's, in a way, the most basic. It's also quite workable we can begin to see it pretty clearly. And, and so it's very... It's kind of a simple way we just get defined and for many it's by our health. We're certainly defined, most of us, by gender, by sexual orientation, by appearance. By, by our sense of age and our, how old am I. By, so what happens is, let's say, there's sickness. This sickness is owned by me, it's happening to me, it's caused by me, it has a very self-sense to it. We identify with it, it's oppressing me. That's just an example. And then we, we identi- th- when we're identified with bodily things, we look at others and who do they become? What's the veil? We see another person, they're a cancer patient. All of a sudden, that's predominant. It stops us from seeing who's there. Are they obese? Are they a model? Are they an athlete? Are they an old person? Are they in some way disabled? It stops us from seeing. I remember reading Stones from the River. How many of you read that book, Stones from the River? Can I see? It focuses on dwarfs and uh, the, the protagonist is a dwarf. And I remember reading it and with horror, realizing that all my life, whenever I had thought of or seen uh, anything to do with dwarfs, it was like I did not think, oh, human subjective beingness, in some way it was like other. And it was like a real embarrassing horror when I, because you you fall in love with the protagonist and her humanity, her her vast goodness. How much do we look at each other and in some way get blinded by body? And then our culture, uh, so many standards about appearance and and sexuality and gender that that really confine us, um, that aging, that aging and sickness is like an insult. It's like this... And I can, I can sense it for myself. I'm going to be turning 59 and in some way I'm in, there's sometimes a sense that I'm battling the insults of aging. You know, yet another's coming my way and then this new wrinkle and this new thing. You know, it's like I'm, I'm kind of like at, at war in some way with this natural process and it's offensive. I mean, how many of you can sense that as like it's just this this message from the culture that what's desirable and good is not, you know, not old necessarily. I remember seeing a little cartoon of a couple in their mid-80s and they're rockers on a, on a porch and she, and he's saying to her, so now you want to have an open relationship? (laughs) So it's cute, but how many of us can relate? I was talking to a friend of mine who's, who's just turning 71, and she's saying the fear of, that's coming with aging and how, how many things are going, and how much in this culture women are that are value, a premium is based on attractiveness and youth. Big deal. And then the acute suffering of young people. As a psychologist, I worked many times with young women who are uh, anorexic, struggling over trying to um, meet a a standard for thinness that's actually really unhealthy. You know, how many young people struggle? Are males that are given this idea of what it is to be a male? You know, my son was recently home, he was telling me about, about a bachelor party. I had forgotten the rituals of a bachelor party. I'm not going to even name them all. I mean, you know, like the cigar lounge and the tour of a brewery. And, and his friends joked about that this is going to be the manliest bachelor party. You know, and like, what is manly, you know? It's uh, um, confining of who we are. So I think of young boys who might not be into sports or might not be drawn to little girls, be drawn to other boys. And, and the tragedy of what's happened when we see the young teens that are finding out that, you know, this is a world they can't live in and committing suicide because of the anguish of being gay. Horrible. So this identification with body is a big thing. And uh, it, where you'll find it in your life is wherever there's strong reactivity. Wherever you feel really attached to something bodily, you know, attached to being muscular and fit or strong or athletic or beautiful, are very aversive to something, are very aversive to being sick or or aging or to being heavy or whatever it is. That's where the identification is. So let's reflect together. I'm going to have you reflect at a few different places, but just to begin to sense for yourself, where is this so? So in this pause, just let yourself take a few breaths and come right here. You've been listening to a lot of words. See if you can feel your body again from the inside. And also let yourself sense how you relate to or experience your body, perhaps its appearance, its capacities, its level of health. Notice if there's anything that you're really, really attached to about how you want your body to be or how it is. Or if there's anything you're really aversive to what you really don't like, what you really feel should be different and you want to be different. Where are you identified? Is it being a sick person or an old person or a fit person? you find somewhere that you can sense there's a strong identity, a strong wanting or fearing, a sense of the kind of solid self in there that's wanting or fearing something about the body, you might ask, is this who I really am? Is this older person or heavy person or sick person who I really am? just to inquire a little, for right now, just to to ask that. Maybe you've had the experience of looking in the mirror over the years and all of a sudden realizing you were looking at your parent's face. Like, how did that happen? But have you really changed? I mean, who's inside? Who's looking out? You know, for some, it's getting older, or getting real sick, that's all, this wisdom arises that there's this kind of transparency all, all of a sudden you can sense spirit shining through that this body is changing, coming, going. So there's not so much identification, but for most of us before that there's a lot of grasping, a lot of aversion. And the truth is these bodies will keep changing and eventually grow old if you don't die young and deteriorate and die. And if the self, if your self-sense is identified with the body, you're going to be on a ride that's destined to be very difficult. So what helps us to loosen that identification to remember something more is the inquiry. Okay, so that's just touching in a little bit. Mm -hmm. This is something you can explore more deeply as you go. So that's one layer of identification. The much more difficult one (laughs) is emotions, is our emotions and the beliefs that circle with them. Uh, When strong fear arises, the sense of it takes over our world. It's like, this is me. I am the fearful self. Something bad is happening to me. Um, or if it's craving, or this is a bad self, this is a needy self. This gets very, very strong with emotions because it occupies our whole psyche. We forget. So there's two clumps of how we identify with emotions. Sometimes we're identifying with wanting something a whole lot. So you might sense, okay, what's this wanting self here? What are the things you want? And we sense it's when we're really wanting, let's say, a romantic relationship or we really want someone's approval or attention or really wanting a certain job or to win something. I often share that line, when a pickpocket sees a saint, he or she sees the saint's pocket. You know, when we're really wanting, what happens to our vision, to our attention? You know, if you're on a... If you're traveling and you have to pee, what are you looking at in the scenery? You know, you're looking for a rest stop, right? (laughs) Unless you're a guy. They get it in different ways. (laughs) So our attention gets fixated, we lose sight, we forget. Some of you might remember this story, it's one of my favorites of a man and a woman sitting next to each other on a plane and she's there and she sneezes and she takes out a tissue and she wipes her nose and shudders really violently for 10, 15 seconds. And then he's kind of surprised, goes back to his reading, but it happens again. She sneezes, takes out a tissue, gently wipes her nose, but then she shudders again, really violently. He's getting more curious about this shuddering, what is going on with her. So it happens one more time. She sneezes, wipes her nose and shudders, and finally gets up his courage and he, he says, look, you've, you've sneezed three times and wiped your nose and shuddered. What, what is going on? And she said, oh, I have a, a very strange condition. When I sneeze, I get an orgasm. And, you know, he's, he's a little surprised by that. He goes, Oh, what are you taking for it? And she said, Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> so when we want something, when we're on our way to something we want... We miss out on the scenery, so to speak, and um, I had a really interesting discussion with my son, Narayan, who I've mentioned here in terms of his computer games in the past. And he's got a... It's proportional now in his life, but he has kind of self-analyzed it because he's very into Magic the Gathering, some of you might be familiar with, and some other games. And the way he analyzes gamings is the seasons when it's taking over his sense of self and life and he's kind of narrowed. He uses the chemical term, he's kind of on a conditioned dopamine cycle whereby every time he reaches a certain level he gets a dopamine fix or hit that really feels good and it, then he wants to get the next, to the next level in the game. He gets another hit and he's always on his way somewhere and it's kind of exciting and it's addictive And, this is interesting to me, he says, especially on some of the new video games, part of the, they have some really cool stories and really gorgeous graphics and scenery, and he says he misses out on all of it, the whole adventure and discovery and exploring and so on, because he's so fixed on getting to the next level well, what is happening to us when we're doing our achieving and trying to prove something and in some way we accomplish something and check something off the list but then we're driven to the next? I mean, how long is it when you finish a project before your mind is already looking at what next you're going to do? I mean, for me, it can be just a matter of seconds, you know? (laughs) I mean, I watch it. So we have these fixes and within it is the sense of the doing self. There's an identity, the achieving self, the mastering, the self that's got some levels of mastery. Now, mastering itself can be a wonderful part of our unfolding, but when the drive to master becomes an addiction, the cycles that I described, We forget who we are. We become this achieving self that's always trying to make the next best thing happen. We can't rest. We can't remember, as the Tibetan Book of the Dead describes it, that radiance of our nature. We don't come home. So let me ask you again to reflect. Well, this time we're gonna reflect a little bit on the wanting self. And again, you're looking for where you might get hooked. The Tibetans have a word called shenpa, which is that stickiness where where you're wanting something and you just keep going after it and you can't really settle into presence. For you, is it the wanting for accomplishment or achievement? Are you wanting attention? Are you wanting a partner or a different partner or something to do with a close human? Is it more to do with substances where you get caught? What is it, what's something you're really hankering after, wanting to happen, wanting to experience? Now as you consider this, just imagine yourself in the thick of, of wanting mind when you're the wanting self. Whether it's wanting another bowl of ice cream or wanting a, jo- a certain job or wanting something to do with material goods or whatever it is. You might even exaggerate right, right now to really tune in. What's your body like when you're wanting? You're wanting something to work out in a certain way. What's your body feel like? Can you feel the restlessness and the tension? What's your heart feel like when you're really wanting something, when there's kind of a grabbing or grasping or a chasing after? What's your sense of yourself when you're wanting? Do you like this self that's here when you're wanting something a lot, very strongly? You're wanting somebody to be a certain way, you're wanting something to happen or something to change? Do you like the self-sense? Just to get a little familiar, Again, what the Buddha described, the suffering of self. It can be sometimes really strong. You might really feel shame around a needy self or an out-of-control self. Or it may be just a sense of contraction that you're not fully at home and, and something more whole. And either way, it's a form of suffering. It's still the pain of separation. Is this who I really am? Just ask for a moment. Is this wanting self, who I really am? Again, this is a to be continued. It's a very useful question, I find, to ask myself when I'm caught, is this who I really am? just in some way way jogs something. Now, then there's the aversive self. That's a self that's judging, hating, disliking, afraid, angry. That's a really strong identity. It's one that really we can feel possessed by. We might not even think of ourselves as, oh, I am the averse of self. There is just aversion and everything so collected around it. We are in that trance of of this v- story of our life that is very confined. And we are forgetting. We are forgetting who we are. We are forgetting who the other is. So an example of, um, of this is uh, a very recent story from my own life. I often don't share something this recent, but because I was working on this uh, talk on identification, I've been really... Uh, that's been my lens as as happens. And uh, I was with a, f- a, a close member of my family who's dealing with impending loss and really, really struggling. And um, I... my, att- inten- my intention is usually to be with somebody and, you know, kind and present. I got into this role that sometimes happens to us where I tried to fix things and I had an idea of what should happen. Really dangerous. (laughs) You know, I was trying to make some things right and I had a very strong opinion on it and for a spell rather than really a sensitive attending to her, you know, feelings of, of grief and confusion, I was being more controlling and more, you know, here's what we need to do and so on. It was really hurtful it was really hurtful i caught it i apologized uh, but you know it didn't it wasn't quick makeup you know it was it was hurtful i had, had been not been sensitive so i um, over the rest of that day Uh, I was feeling very much uh, really down on myself. I went into a real bad-self kind of experience. And I was not thinking, oh, but the whole of me is radiant awareness and this is just a little wave on the surface of my ocean. And, you know, I was not there, you know. (laughs) You know, it was was like a very strong feeling of this, you know, really yucky, stabbing feeling in my heart. So it was a limited self-sense. This is my identity contracted. I was into bad personhood, and uh, I was identifying with those waves of bad personhood, that constellation. Now, when we're the victim, it's still a small self. I mean, she, as we could explore it together, was caught in her. I'm um, a victim, and it still has a feeling of not okayness, and we've still forgotten who we are. So, let me ask you to reflect on where where aversiveness has ended up becoming a kind of centralizing place in your life where you might find that stickiness of self and identification with aversion. So again, you can just close your eyes and check in. And you might just scan because again, identification happens when the feelings are very strong. What are situations where you get caught in maybe fearing what's going to happen? Or when you're really triggered by someone, angry, betrayed. Or when there's, as I experience, a kind of shame or down on yourself. What are the situations? Or is there one that stands out for you that you can investigate right now? If there is one, let yourself enter it a bit. Where you're reactive, with anger, fear, shame, and let yourself notice. You know, again, you might exaggerate a little so you can enter right in and sense the what's wrong feeling and what's really you're afraid of or upset by. Just take your time and just feel that and sense what your body's like when you're in reaction. there's judgment or real anxiety about what's going to happen shame what's your heart feel like what's your sense of self when you're in this just look at your sense of your own identity like the sense of who am I might notice if you like this self maybe you do maybe there's a self, a righteousness or a feeling like well this is real and this is what I'm feeling but ask yourself even more deeply, is this who I really am? Can I even get a glimmer of who I really am in the midst? This is really who I am Okay, just gently come on back. Now this is a very quick reflection, so you didn't have a lot of time to get in touch. But for those of you that maybe got in touch with a, a strong current reactivity in your life, you might have noticed, as I describe with myself, that if you're really in it, it's a strong reaction it does feel like me in those moments. This is, yeah, this is this feels very solid, very like me. And to too quickly try to say, yeah, but what about that, that wholeness and that radiance and that love would actually be to dishonor the actual experience in the moment. You don't want to jump too quickly. So that inquiry of, is this who I really am, is useful just to kind of open things up a bit. But you want to stay with the experience. And so what I'd like to do is, is for this last part of this talk, is explore how do we, with a, with a real authenticity, move from that grip of identification to more freedom, without dishonoring the realness of the feelings. Because I've seen many, many Oh, teachings or practices that says oh you're angry, well don't water the seeds of anger, go to this but in a way it buries what's there and it confirms this, this kind of sense like I'm bad for feeling this does that make sense? so what is a re- really an honoring way that we can stay with what's there but wake up through it to who we are I like as a metaphor something I've been um, using a bit for years and years and a bit tonight of if you sense yourself as an ocean that there are some patterns of waves that we've come to say, oh, this is me. And when we get, when there's a lot of reactivity it feels strongly like me and we do forget the vastness and the depth and the full aliveness and the radiance and the goodness, we forget. So the practice is not to say, oh, those waves, they're not me. It's to have a way to feel the waveness and discover the ocean-ness inside it so we can sense the vastness of what we are and still honor the play of feelings, emotions, and thoughts as they're moving through. To not be exclusively identified. So let me share with you a little more of how I worked with what was going on for me because, as I mentioned, this was just a few days ago and and it was pretty strong. Um, As you know, hurting people that you love, it can really cause a contraction. (laughs) So for me, when I began working with it, the first step is always recognizing what's going on. So I started recognizing the thoughts that were going on and the thoughts were, how could I? You know, I teach this stuff. I teach about not fixing but being present. How could I? You know, it was that kind of a feeling. And then there's, you know, thoughts that, you know, uh, just that morning I had done my meditation and felt really open and so on, and my ended with that prayer, please may I live this day from loving presence, my, whoever I'm in touch with, may there be kindness and understanding. You know, I had that prayer, how could I? You know, so there was that feeling and then, or that thought, and then, in, you know, the feeling of bad person and this aching heaviness that I mention. The next step was to let the feelings be strong enough that I could recognize, oh, this is suffering. This, I'm caught. There's a caughtness, a feeling of separate and bad and caught. There's some forgetting, there's suffering here. And. I find it very useful, I sometimes call it the ouch moment, just to name, this is hard, this hurts, this is suffering. And if we can even remember, it's not my suffering, it's the suffering. You know, the Sufis talk about the mother of this world and that each one of us are endowed with a certain amount of the pain of the world. It's the suffering. Others experience it too, I'm not alone. So that was the first step is to feel how bad I felt and go, okay, suffering, this is suffering. And then how do I want to relate to it? As soon as we can get, ouch, this is suffering, there's a little more space to sense how do we want to relate? Which brings us to the most basic principle with the waves. It doesn't matter what waves are going on. What matters is how we're relating. And if there's no mindfulness, if we're completely absorbed in them, we're identified. If we're relating to the waves, not from them, we begin to reconnect to a larger sense of being. So for me, how do I want to relate? I want to relate in a way that's kind and in a way that's forgiving. It does not help to um, condemn myself. It just doesn't help. It doesn't then make me set up to be a nicer person the next time. So that was the practice. And and forgiveness, by the way, means you have to stay in touch with what feels so bad. You don't forgive by just doing a blanket statement, oh, forgiven, you're fine, go ahead, you know, do what you want. Forgiveness means, okay, I feel this sense, this sinking, aching feeling of having created harm. Forgiven, forgiven, be with it with kindness. And I usually put my hand on my heart because it helps me be more sincere and present with myself. So as I did that, there began to be this shift where that heavy aching feeling, um, I became flooded with kind of a sorrow and a tenderness. And then there, that tenderness, if, if there was a voice to that tenderness, it would have been really simply, I really want her to feel some peace. I really want her to feel loved. Then I could begin to ask that inquiry, is that bad person, that hurtful person who I really am? Then I could ask that with some integrity. Because then it was clear, yeah, those are waves of conditioning and they're part of this being. And they're not defining this beingness. There's love, there's awareness here. I was back in a kind of being the ocean and with the waves not denying the waves. The more that we have that perspective, then we can begin to enter the waves in a a very, very whole way. We can meet them with our whole body. These are uh, the words of poet Donna Falls. And she, this is a poem called Go In and In. And it comes from a book of poetry called Go In and In. And we're going to have that available in a few weeks because her poetry is so, so powerful and simple. She says, go in and in. Be the space between two cells, the vast resounding silence in which spirit dwells. Go in and in and turn away from nothing that you find. So this is the process, that we feel these waves and we're not saying, oh, bad, or oh, this isn't me. We go in and in, we feel the waves, we feel the aliveness, the clutch, the pain, the soreness, the sadness, and the space that's inside everything. I think many of you know that they they say that, you know, 99.9% of this universe is space. Now that includes the universe inside us. So when you go in and in to these waves of emotion and pain, if you really stay with it, with courage, you find that space, that silence, that's inside everything. Again, that's this expression of ocean You find the space and then there's room for these waves. So a few comments. I'm going to have you practice this in a moment, this way of being with the aversive self and really opening up. But a few comments, which is that it begins with recognizing something's going on. If you can pause and say, oh, okay, whether you call it, you know, shenpa, that stickiness or identification or aversive self or reactive self, okay, something's going on. And then you choose to hang out, you pause. You say, okay, what's going on, the thoughts, you recognize the thoughts, you recognize the feelings and choose to be with forgiveness, with kindness. Then you'll be in a space that has that presence to go in and in and find your freedom. Okay, that's the sequence. There's a poet, another poet, um, I'd like to ne- mention tonight. And her name's Tara Sophia Moore from the West Coast. And she calls this larger truth we discover when we go through the waves and find the ocean, she says that she calls it your other names. You know, we have the name we're familiar with of the ego self, a certain set of waves. You find your other names as you open in presence. I'm gonna read you, this is a little, a poem she wrote called The One Deep Inside Your Chest. It's okay. again, same ideas going in and in, but it's a way of paying attention. And she talks about paying attention, in this case, to the body. You might also sense to the emotional body or to the behaving self. She says, this first part's recognized. Step back and watch your body being a body. Watch an arm move through space. Watch an ankle turn. For me, watch the thoughts play out. Watch the feelings that are going on. She says, watch your body as it likes things or doesn't, as it gets scrapes and bruises, as the skin darkens and falls into folds. Step back to the perimeter of the theater and watch your body on the stage. Can you feel, as you do, the one deep inside your chest who has existed forever? can you watch can you know that you're associated with it's part of but can you feel the one deep inside your chest she writes who has existed forever who has made a thousand journeys who feels like a comet in the dark the inner filament I know no one ever told you I know it wasn't the name you learned to write at school but that is the one but that one is you that one is the real you Can you feel inside? Can you feel the deep one inside your chest who has existed forever? So in a way, this is what we're talking about tonight, that we find our other names. We get caught in a narrow identity, wanting self, fearful self. And by presence, we start discovering a broader sense of our being that really is our refuge. It's our freedom. Available to each of us. But it begins by just contacting our experience and going, oh, okay, suffering. Can I be kind? And then deepening presence, going in and in to that beingness. Again, before we practice, I want to say that when we discover that one who's always been there, that spirit, that what sometimes describes this formless essence, it actually frees us to celebrate the waves to celebrate this particular body in its uniqueness and aliveness, to celebrate the play of emotions and to celebrate the life that's being lived. Because what's happening is we're remembering our wholeness. We're remembering our belonging to all of life. This is John Seuss, he writes, and he's like being belonging to life. He says, to be of the earth is to know the restlessness of being a seed, the darkness of being planted, the struggle toward the light, the pain of growth into the light, the joy of bursting and bearing fruit, the love of being food for someone, the scattering of your seeds, the decay of the seasons, the mystery of death, and the miracle of birth. We practice to wake up from this small identity and to realize our belonging to this aliveness and earth, this wholeness, and to this formless awareness that's really the one who's been here forever. So we'll close together tonight with a a final reflection. give you a chance just to explore, just three minutes short, explore a place where you might get stuck in a more narrowed identity, a name that does not feel really good to you. Just sense a little bit on how we open. I'd like to invite you to choose wherever you may have felt reactive with some real charge and and it might be useful to choose some reactivity that happens with another person because the truth that we forget the identity we forget when we forget our own we forget each other so where might you have recently or more regularly gone into a fear reaction or judgment hurt, blame, anger a feeling of distance where you felt kind of stuck in a separateness. If you have a situation, just to go inside it enough so you can really, with a kind of courage, sense, okay, so what's it like when I'm caught in that? How does my body feel? heart. The first all-important recognition is that when you're caught, it's suffering. It's not your suffering, it's just the suffering. It's how our body minds get caught, get narrowed. So you might just in some way acknowledge that, okay, ouch, this is, this is suffering, the suffering, and sense how you want to relate to it. Even the intention to regard the suffering with some care, with some kindness, will begin to open the door to the other names, your other true names, to that radiance. Just the intention. You might, as I, as I did, it, if it helps you to put your hand on your heart and just sense with the touch of your hand that you're offering a forgiving, kind presence to that stuck sense of self, to that angry self, the hurt self, the victimized self, the fearful self. And notice what happens when you feel that touch and that kindness or even the intention to be kind. Notice what happens. You can vary the touch if you'd like. It actually helps you to really be intimate with your own experience till you're communicating a kind presence. The beginning of a shift in identification comes with that kindness. You can find a little more space, a little more sense that who you are is not the stuck self. There's a kind of presence that's more what you are, a kind presence. So you can begin to let yourself go in and in more. Just feel the place of disturbance, of hurt, of of fear, just as sensations, as aliveness, and just keep going in. as if you're just saying yes to it with the deepest yes you know yes, I'll feel this yes, be what you are just experiencing it as energy in your body and see if you can begin to sense in this energy in your body some space that's inside it the space between the cells Again, from the poem, the one deep inside your chest, can you feel that? Can you feel the one deep inside your chest who has existed forever? Who has made a thousand journeys? Who feels like a comet in the dark, the inner filament? Take a moment to sense who am I? when there's this presence with what's going on, Who am I right now? And Can you begin to sense a tenderness, an openness, a presence that's more the truth of who you are than any personality, any particular emotion, any story. The as Srina puts it, he says, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. If you chose a situation involved another person, you might close your reflection by sensing the other person and see if you can sense behind the mask the consciousness, the aliveness, and that beingness that's also been there forever. So we close with Metta. Just take a moment to offer yourself whatever blessing you'd like tonight to close the evening. Just whatever wish naturally comes to you for your own healing and freedom. Extending that heart field to include anyone that's come to mind in your meditation or anyone in your life right now that just naturally you want to offer some metta to, some loving-kindness to, just sense that person in your heart, seeing the spirit shining through that being, offering your blessing. And we close by extending our blessings so that all of us here right now listening or listening through podcasts or watching, all of us that field of heart space, that, that waking, awakening heart space, just to send our prayers to all beings. May all beings everywhere realize their deepest nature as loving presence. Inhabit that nature and live from that nature. May there be peace on earth. May all beings everywhere awaken and be free. Namaste. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule, or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, or IMCW's site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.